You're listening to the 39A podcast. Hi, I'm Yash and with me is my colleague and co-host Neetika and we welcome you to the 39A podcast. For those of you who haven't heard of us before, we are Project 39A, a organization based out of National Law University Delhi. Our team of professionals from diverse disciplines undertake pro bono litigation and research related to the criminal justice system. We focus on mental health, forensic evidence, legal aid, custodial torture and the death penalty. This podcast is for the criminal lawyer, the activist and the law student alike and pretty much for everyone else who wants to think about crime and punishment. In the first episode, we interview Dr. Sanjeev Jain, who's a neuropsychiatrist at the National Institute of Mental Health and Neurosciences in Bengaluru. He will talk to us today about the mental health issues which may have played a role in the incident at Burari in Delhi. Before that we'll also take you through a couple of interesting judgments from the last couple of months the issues we're discussing are three beggary law torture in police custody and insanity and mental health So one of the judgments we want to talk about is a recent judgment by the acting chief justice of the Delhi High Court Rashi then was Justice Geeta Mittal and Justice C mm-hmm. Hari Shankar the bench has struck down provisions of the Bombay Prevention of Begging Act 1960 which was extended to Delhi in the same year now before we discuss the judgment and the act i think let's just go through the basics of the act basically this act provides powers to the police and the court to arrest to do a summary inquiry to punish repeat offenders in order to deal with the problem but my question is why is this act being criticized so one of the biggest problems with the act really is the definition of beggary itself which is too broad and what ends up happening is that while the act wants to restrict the movement of beggars the application of it also limits the movement of a large number of non beggars and when harsh mandar and vadnika sahane filed this petition they also talk about this study that was conducted with legal aid lawyers and it revealed that 74% of persons who were arrested under this act were people from informal labor sector and these were people who were employed in small hotels markets and at the construction sector and in fact 45% of these people were homeless so is that because there's a problem with abuse of the act or is that a problem in the act itself that's a problem in the act itself because the way it's defined it leads to an arbitrary application and hence it becomes violative of article 14 and 21 which is the right to life and the right to equality if if we closely look at the definition of begging then we see that it doesn't really require someone to caught in the act itself uh it, it it is much more expansive because it only requires you to be seen in a public place so that it is likely that you would be engaging in the in the act of begging which is i guess the court's problem uh with the act too precisely so people who sing dance or do, who do fortune telling who perform in public can actually be detained under this act and looking at the definition which is so loosely defined it it becomes very hard to imagine how anyone who looks poor or homeless will escape the police in a public place you are talking about the right to equality the court borrows from shaira banu's judgment from last year which is the judgment which was about triple talaq and says this these provisions are manifestly arbitrary now uh, how do you decide whether something is manifestly arbitrary or not so if we look at the context of this act 
one of the biggest problems is that the law does not make the distinction between types of begging so it does not make distinction between voluntary and involuntary begging and that becomes a problem because then basically homelessness can be synonymized with begging and yeah, and i think that interacts with the right to life too because if you're homeless then and if you criminalize someone for being homeless does that mean that the person still has a right to life which is why the delhi high court went so far as to say that if the state was to remove poverty making the poor criminals is not the answer i mean one cannot punish those compelled to beg for a living yeah and the bench also noted that uh we've seen a lot of starvation deaths happening in even in delhi and also the when the state has provisions in several social welfare programs that says that it is the state's duty to make sure that everybody has a meal that everybody has certain social uh, minimum a minimum standard of living then the question is can you still create a category of people who should be getting covered by these uh, social welfare provisions and can you send that category of people to an institution or a jail and i think there was a problem with these institutions also because i i don't think everybody is jailed uh if they are caught under the act so everyone's not jailed if they are caught under the act because there's a concept of detention centers so if you're caught for the first time you will be sent to this detention center for a year if it's the second time then it's up to 10 years but uh, the vocational training and other facilities that come with it are things that are not being provided for and that is one of the things that critics have been talking about and i think justice geeta mithal also noted the same when she said that the funds for these vocational training etc for these facilities are lying unused now what we have to look out for is whether this judgment will force or inspire other high courts to follow suit and encourage reform because at least 19 other states have some version of this act There have been a couple of judgments in the last two months coming from the courts which have made torture a very important topic to discuss and I think at the base of this is our general pop culture acceptance of torture as a reality. In Bollywood we see the valiant police officer beating the villain to a pulp because that is apparently the only way to obtain the truth and I think that somehow that is settled into our ethos as a society and also within maybe the judiciary. In one of the studies that we did with 60 former Supreme Court judges, 38 out of 39 of them accepted that torture is a reality of the Indian criminal justice system. In fact, one third of them thought it to be a necessary evil. I think that just shows the desperation and and just the almost acceptance of failure with respect to tackling the problem of torture during custody. I think that's why it becomes important to reflect on why the police tortures and it's not just because they're evil people or because there's pressure on them to nab the accused it has deeper connections with investigation and with evidence For example if you look at if a statement is given in police custody what is the effect of that statement in India Now many countries have their own way of dealing with police torture and some have a blanket uh, rejection of any evidence in police custody some have safeguards built in conditions of custody itself in india it's a partial acceptance of any evidence that comes in through it so while indian law doesn't allow the court to rely upon a confession made in police custody that is apparently our protection against torture in police custody but at the same time section 27 of the evidence act which deals with this allows for certain part of the confession to become admissible for example 
if I kill someone because I didn't like the color of their hair and, and then I tell the police, well, I had a long enmity with this person, I didn't like the color of that person's hair and let me take you to the body, then only the last part, which is let me take you to the body, which eventually does lead to the body, is what is relevant. Which is why I think the provision is also termed as the statement relates distinctly to the fact thereby discovered. Which means that a confession made in police custody has no bearing upon a court. But if I find the body thanks to my confession, or if I find a weapon, or if I find something else that is relevant to the crime, then that part of the statement is what is admissible. So we see how section 27 allows for torture, and that becomes a problem and often these excesses take form of custodial death. The Supreme Court in a 1996 landmark judgment of D.K. Basu uh, created safeguards during arrest to prevent this and uh, the two safeguards were that the family member of the person who's being arrested needs to be informed immediately and a spontaneous record of the arrest needs to be made. These guidelines are what are really at play in a recent judgment by the Bombay High Court called Sheikh Rustam where the person approaching the Aurangabad bench of the Bombay High Court is Shama who's Sheikh Rustam's widowed uh, wife. Now Sheikh Rustam was a daily wage uh, labourer who was apparently caught by the police for the allegation of stealing a mobile phone. And thereafter, as the facts go, and the High Court notes this, Sheikh Rustam is then tied in the police uh, station to a chair using a rope. And then he's transported in the same way in a police vehicle. Now, the police claims that while he was being transported to recover said mobile phone, he apparently tried to flee and he jumped out of the police vehicle. And the also the only reason why he was kept in this manner is because he had tried to flee before at the police station. So the High Court does not accept this and I think that looking at DK Basu's guidelines is a way to answer why the High Court rejected this version of the prosecution. In fact, uh, Rustam's case is very similar to a 1993 judgment in Nilabati Behra where the Supreme Court took action upon a letter by Nilabati who was the mother of Suman Behra who was her 22-year-old son who was taken in police custody one morning and the next day his body was found near the railway tracks. So the state argued that Suman had escaped and he got run over by a train and that's why he was his body was yeah, found. Yeah, apparently in- Suman just basically escaped from the police station and headed straight in front of a train. Very similar to Rustam's case where they say that he tried to jump out of the police vehicle Uh, and he injured And that too when when he was tied to a chair and had rope all around him, apparently he still managed to overpower police officers and jump out of the jeep. So in Behra, the Supreme Court was not impressed by this story and it directed compensation for Suman's family and also that appropriate action be taken against the relevant police officers. Similarly, in Rustam's case, the High Court directed a payment of compensation and it also directed a registration of criminal case for murder against related police officers. And what's really to think about is if the DK Basu guidelines which came in almost two decades ago had been followed, if a member of Sheikh Rustam's family had been informed immediately upon his arrest, or if a record had been made of what is happening after the arrest or during the arrest, this would have been avoided. Because one of the things that the High Court notes is that there is no record of the fact that uh, Sheikh Rustam tried to flee in the police station or thereafter, and therefore the prosecution and the police's version is not believed. The family only got to see Sheikh Rustam after he was already on his deathbed and in a hospital. The related question to this is, Do our courts have the appropriate understanding of Section 27 to avoid a reliance on confessions that come out of coercion or torture? And I think the Supreme Court has recently commented on this. 
it has and the understanding seems to be quite confusing really and this is the case of raju manji who was convicted for theft of gold ornaments and cash and police claims that uh, they recovered 400 rupees and some bloody sticks from him after he wrote a confession in police custody while manji's lawyer's version was that uh, the confession was in fact written in the same handwriting as all other accused and it should be assumed that it was forged because it was made in police custody and also because section 27 already says that there is no way that you can make an inadmissible statement admissible as long as the person is in police custody i don't see how that can happen obviously we are not co- commenting on manji's innocence but from the judgment itself it seems like a clear departure from the norm because Courts are not bound to rely upon confessions made in police custody. In fact, they're bound not to rely upon it, and I I think that's why the this particular judgment of the Supreme Court has come under uh, significant criticism. There are a couple of high court former high court judges that have said that this betrays our understanding of confessions in police custody, and uh, I th- I think also a lot of lawyers have commented how. there definitely must be a review of this judgment it has also been said that it goes against the la- landmark case of kathigalu oghar from 1961 where the court said that people have a right to not give evidence against themselves yeah which is the right against uh, self incrimination which is also enshrined in our constitution Another issue that we have reason to discuss is the issue of insanity because the Supreme Court has reiterated the law of insanity in a recent judgment called Devidas Loka Rathod. Now the facts behind this case are quite interesting. Devidas Loka Rathod one fine afternoon starts beating up the people around him using a sickle. A good Samaritan Harish Chauhan intervenes to save someone who's getting beaten up by Devidas. As a result of this Devidas starts beating up Harish Chauhan and it unfortunately leads to Harish Chauhan's death. In the trial court the defense lawyer for Devidas argues that he was mentally unsound at the time of the commission of the crime but the trial court found reason to disagree and said that there is no evidence to suggest as such the trial court then convicts him and gives him life imprisonment for murder he goes to the high court and the high court agrees with the trial court and says that there is no evidence to suggest that he was insane and on top of that at the time that the proceedings were going on he seemed like he was in control and understood what was going on but it's the supreme court where all of this changes because the supreme court disagrees with this right so the supreme court disagrees with lower courts on two grounds and the first ground is that the onus on defense when arguing insanity is that of preponderance of probability and not the usual standard of beyond reasonable doubt but if the onus is lower then what was the defense lawyer doing and why was this standard not met at the trial court or the high court so unfortunately in this case the prosecution did not disclose that devidas has had history of psychotic episodes and the bench did blame the prosecution for keeping this relevant evidence away and the court was also unhappy with the approach of trial court which did not question the immediate hospitalization of this man in the beginning of the trial consequently the supreme court acquitted devidas and it discovered that the accused was unable to take care of himself because of poor financial situation suicidal tendencies and he was also under constant usage of antipsychotic drugs the court also gave directions for care and support from the state i think that this judgment is a relevant uh, segue into questioning whether we really have an infrastructure at the trial court level to detect mental illnesses and to diagnose them if someone is insane unlike devidas they shouldn't have to go through 12 years of imprisonment for that evidence to actually come before the court i think there are several judgments i'll just mention the case of devinder pal singh bolar first 
this was a terrorism case and after Devinder Pal Singh Bhullar having lost all of his appeals on conviction all the way up to the Supreme Court, he filed a mercy because it was a, he was a death row convict. That mercy was rejected. He filed a writ petition against the rejection of that mercy and the Supreme Court noted in his judgment rejecting his claim saying that people who do not show any mercy do not deserve any mercy. It was almost like a very revengeful and retributive version of uh, of, the, of of the judiciary and of jurisprudence that we saw. And perhaps it came about because it, it was a terrorism case. But almost a year later, the same Supreme Court held in a curative petition filed by Devinder Pal Singh Bhullar's wife, uh, Namneet Kaur, that Devinder Pal Singh Bhullar had a history of mental illness and they commuted his sentence. Which means that it's pretty much up to chance whether your mental illness is recognized by the Supreme Court or not. And it's not just one or two cases. There is a history there. This has happened in many other cases too. So similarly in Durga Domar, which was a case from 2001, where he murdered five children, he his medical condition was not considered till the Supreme Court appeal. He did not have private counsel before trial court or high court and nobody informed his legal representative about his mental condition. And the reason why Supreme Court ultimately did discover and recognize his mental illness was because of its own volition, because it decided to get him examined by a psychiatrist. And the Supreme Court discovered that he'd in fact gone through a psychotic episode. I think the problem is also that we are relying too much on persons who are untrained to detect mental illness, especially during trial. Because just like in Devidas's case, I think the system would expect the defense lawyer to know that Devidas has a history of mental illness and clearly that's not working out. Some people actually end up spending more than a decade in prison and there's a case of Machan Lalung, a 77-year-old man from Assam who actually spent 54 years in prison awaiting trial. He was arrested at a very young age of 23 for causing grievous hurt. Wait, but the maximum punishment for grievous hurt is only 7 years. It is only 7 years, but it's just unfortunate that he was not even presented before a magistrate uh, in over 5 decades. And within a year of his arrest, he was transferred to a psychiatric institution. It was only after a human rights activist filed a petition regarding his detention in the Supreme Court that he was finally released. I mean, there are a couple of other cases that come to our mind. One is RML National University student called Satnam Singh Man who met with a tragic death in 2012. There's another case of a death row prisoner called Santosh Maruti Mane whose case, despite his history of mental illness, did not recognize his mental illness. It just shows that we may not have the infrastructure for having a consistent standard in dealing with mental illness during criminal trial. And I think that's something that our interview section today is all about. In today's episode, we'll be discussing an interesting and much-publicized case which involves hanging by 11 members of a family in Delhi. This is the infamous Burari case. Two brothers, along with their wives and children and mother belonging to this family, who were described as happy and financially sound by their neighbours, were found hanging in their own house. There were also diaries which belonged to Lalit, the younger brother, and these diaries showcased the family's belief that they would stay uh, safe and alive after this ritual. There's also been a talk of the family and some members of the family suffering from a shared delusional disorder. Our expert, Dr. Sanjeev Jain today, who is a professor of neuropsychiatry at Nimhans Bengaluru, will be providing us insights into this particular aspect of mental health. He will also be discussing the law on insanity in India. And this interview will be conducted by Maitri, who heads the mental health research project at Project 39A. 
Dr. Jain, we'll talk about uh, the Burari incident that happened mm-hmm. in Ju- on July 1st this year. Uh, I just wanted to get your initial thoughts on uh, what you made of the incident. It was obviously a tragic thing to happen. I have no first-hand information about the case, but from what one has read in the media and what's been described uh, professionally as a as a discussion point in so-called psychological autopsies, seem to suggest that there may have been some element of uh, some belief system that was shared between the family, which uh, were kind of magical, religious, or mystical kind of belief systems, which made a very um, planned and coordinated attempt at suicide feasible. So I think that the whole episode occurred out of some kind of uh, mindset which allowed several people to have similar ideas about the way they would like these things to happen or believe in certain things. So Mm -hmm. I don't think they ever sought psychiatric help in that sense. Mm -hmm. So this is all at one level speculative. One has to be very, very careful of that. The family has never been examined technically from a psychiatric perspective. Right. So, I mean, um, speaking of media reports and what we all know is uh, that media at least seems to be uh, calling it a case of shared delusion. Mm -hmm. Could you elaborate on what a shared delusion is? It's a concept which came up around the beginning of the 20th century. So there were many forms. It was described classically by the French psychopathologists sometime in the, around the First World War or just before. And there were several kinds described, a communicative and imposed. And uh, so English ideas folio do, that two people share the same delusion. And this was usually in a very close symbiotic relationship in which one person was clearly superior in power within a family setup than the other. And the other one willy-nilly followed the belief system of the other. Typically, it would be seen in parent-offspring pairs, mother-daughter, father-son. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also describe various forms. One is that uh, delusion was communicated from one to the other. That was just simply shared. The one in which was imposed by one or the other, in which the other person did try to resist and found themselves uh, having the same belief system. It could also be just a random occurrence of two people becoming mentally ill at the same time, mm. the simultaneous form. That it can happen in families, mental illnesses do run in families, and two people happen to fall ill at the same time. And because they live together, they share a certain kinds of symptoms with each other. Mm. And then it became the much wider multiforme, which is an exceedingly rare uh, syndrome, in which you have multiple people sharing the same delusions, and even rarer when it extends out in the community. Mm. The warm, the, like cult following mm-hmm. and things like that. So these are various kinds of shared delusion disorders. So, I mean, you spoke of uh, there being the presence of a delusion, but could you talk about a little bit about what exactly a delusion is? Ah. The delusion, by its textbook definition, is a false, fixed, but firm belief, mm. which is irrational and etc., etc. But at the end, there is a bracket, and which is not subculturally shared. For example, not driving along a road when a, if a cat has crossed your way. Yeah. Now, that's a, that's a behavior which occurs all over the world. It clearly is unreasonable. Mm. Now, if you, if you made a very f- fixed definition of a delusion, one would have to qualify most of the human population as being delusional at some point or the other. In Hindi, uh, 
is between uh, vehem and yakin. You know, is a just a whisker which separates the two. Right. So if I understand correctly, in a shared delusion, there'd be uh, a primary case. The, yes. The main person. Yes. Um, and in in your experience, have you come across cases where this has happened? Oh yes. I mean, these are these are rare syndromes. So the fact that an entire family or entire group of network of people share the same belief system is exceedingly rare. But they do come. So people who are firmly convinced, family members who are convinced that somebody in the family is actually possessed, they actually pray to the person, they actually believe that the person has magical powers, or they start believing that primary person that yes, those neighbors are actually tormenting us. We've had cases in which the family has moved 15 houses because the entire set of the family would believe that yes, these new neighbors have also got in touch with the previous neighbors and somehow there's a whole network of these people right. who harass us. So they've had 10 or 15 times had to move their house. So then how do you, if I can call it, how do you break the delusion? Well, psychiatry has its own mystical things. Very often we just give them a small pill right. and all this disappears, <laughs> which is reasonably effective. So one shouldn't uh, dismiss these small pills. So effective treatment is, thankfully, reasonably effective. Right. So, but more equally important is to keep the family together but apart. How what is So it? what I mean is that we admit the person and make sure they're in different wards. Why is that important? Because then each one would be spoken to by a separate doctor. And then we would like to uh, convince them or in a sense point out the inaccuracies or the inconsistencies in the belief system. And hopefully that would give us a window, a wedge to drive some degree of doubt into their convictions. Right. And usually that works. That would be very clear that one person who's primarily ill and the other person who's only mirroring that insanity. Right. And that other person need not have an illness by themselves. Just physical separation would help the other person recover. Sorry, so you were saying that the person who's the person mirroring, is there, the, is there a condition that the person should or is likely to also have an independent mental illness? That's more difficult. Again, the classic texts are from the... French school and the German school of the early 20th century. They always found that this other person was pathologically dependent or subservient to the main person. Mm. And there are novels written about it. I think uh, there's a short story by Sartre called Intimacy which starts with a theme like this. Okay. So this is something which has passed on into literary canons also from the early 20th century. But typically these people would not have a primary psychiatric disorder by themselves. And of course, if you extend it to, you know, the cult murders of Jonestown and yeah. the Swiss case, they were obviously not mentally ill in the classical sense of the word. In the, they had not seen sought psychiatric help, but they were subject to a kind of gullible belief in highly implausible and unlikely belief systems. So, like, when you say that... <clears throat> uh, We've, we've spoken about uh, incontrovertible evidence being presented mm. and what it, what I understand of it is that uh, people who are involved or subject to that shared delusion, mm. uh, they increasingly interact only with each other. Yes. So there's no opportunity for someone else to present an evidence. Precisely. But 
coming to the Burari case, for hmm. instance, um, the age group of the people who died from hmm. 15 to 77. Now, a lot of the people in that household were going to schools and colleges, um, shops. Would that could a shared delusion about? Oh yes, oh yes. This again, I'm sorry to keep falling back into jargon, but this is typically what in psychiatric terminology is known as double bookkeeping. Double bookkeeping of your consciousness. Right. So you have a separate account, which separate way of dealing with the world, and a separate way of what's going on in your head. Okay. So a typical funny example is that a patient is in a closed ward, and you ask them who they are, and they they say they are Shah Rukh Khan or some famous politician or whatever. But what are you doing? Why are you sweeping the floor and why are you dressed in rags? Oh, that's different. I, I am that. You don't, you don't think it, that's your problem, but I am that. So in their mind, they are this famous person, which is completely incompatible with them being in the closed wall of a mental hospital. Right. But they, to themselves, they feel, act and behave as if they were very important people. So this kind of, of, a, of a double bookkeeping that you have a separate reality inside your head can then be shared. So mm -hmm. this is a completely secret world or a private world right. in which the rest of so-called objective reality really does not intrude. So that entire private reality is now what is being shared by this delusion disorder, which is the typical way in which a delusion disorder occurs, that this private consciousness, all of us share our consciousness. And when you're talking, you're sharing the output of our consciousnesses. But if there's a separate private world in which only there's a, in which there's a impermeable barrier between the objective reality and this private experience, which is private to a group of people. And the other thing was, I just remembered, uh, in the, again, the media and everything, they were saying that uh, how the person's father had died in 2007 and that's when these diaries he Start. started uh, started writing them yeah is there is there a connection between like loss of a loved one like somebody like a father hmm. and onset of something like this oh yes so uh, lots of psychiatric illnesses start with periods of stress they can get uh, caught up with the whole aspect of family dynamics and family events. And uh, so that by itself is not uh, unusual. Mm. I mean, it's rare, but it's not unusual. One does see. Very often it's also a case that the illness comes to light when other people have gone away. Right. So, for example, people have been, couple have been living together. It's only when one person dies that you realize the other person was demented because the other person had been covering up for the other per person's deficit for so long. Right. that the illness was not apparent. So families very often have a very complex way of uh, covering over the minor cracks. Mm. And when one person disappears, the cracks become Bigger. wider. Mm. And then, if, but people are still trying to cover it up and then this whole shared business starts coming. It's much more easier in many societies to live with odd beliefs rather than confront them. Yeah. So now, um, because we're doing this for a, also a legal audience, I would like mm -hmm. to bring the whole idea of shared delusion within the ambit of criminal law. Uh -huh. So for, for instance, if there were two people who were to uh, go and kill someone, hmm. um, 
saying that uh, if they killed this person then maybe then they are going to um, i don't know, attain moksha right, right, things right. like that um now for because it's a shared delusion or if it might be a case of shared delusion there's going to be one main person right. um now the other person how do you distinguish um whether this person is acting under the delusion effect or merely following this person because this person might be in authority uh, see that's a very difficult question to answer because it would basically mean that they should have been examined around the time when the act was occurred right by a psychiatrist see the easiest or rather simplest thing that one was taught in so called forensic psychiatry is that crimes which appear completely senseless and the person make no effort to hide the fact or there is no apparent reason for the crime are usually the work of lunatics that was the like right. modi's textbook right uh, kind of very simplistic mbbs level definitions but when you work as a specialist psychiatrist you find that this is an exceedingly gray zone i mean if you have to be true to the to the understanding of these kinds of phenomena there should be to my mind there should be some reasonable uh, process by which people who do commit these uh, you know any struggle crimes especially within the domestic situation are actually assessed for a psychiatric disorder hmm. but but do you think it's also there's some um uh dissonance between the law and psychiatry in that sense because as far as the insanity defense in india has developed mm-hmm. um they do say that one must look at the behavior of the person before during and after the commission mm-hmm. of the crime but really there's because people might never have sought psychiatric help right. it's difficult to right. um do that so mm-hmm. how do you how does one even bring forward a defense like that i i think a careful uh recapitulation of the person's developmental history the social con- the social circumstances of his life the level what was he working or what are the what are the person's highest level of accomplishment what were the interpersonal situations most of the places can build this up by a series of ancillary informations from school from neighbors from family from social systems it's it's not uh, it's not rocket science at all it's just painstaking tedious work right. to build this whole profile up of what the person was before this event happened and can anything other than the obvious act that has been committed what can be the antecedents of this behavior so for instance for lawyers it would be um, one of the things that i think becomes problematic is when lawyers say at that particular time can you tell me if the person was i think that that is a, that is a reflection again of uh, in a sense colonial not attitudes but this were the these were the very literal representations of the law as was being exercised by british magistrates or british trained lawyers because they could not actually comprehend the actual talking to or the interviews of the patient themselves so they would go only by behavior mm. was a was he behaving in a mad way right because they never could really understand what the patient was saying or what was going on in his head because they would not bother to translate everything that the patient mm-hmm. said 
this is all through interpreters that all this process would go on. And that attitude has somehow continued to now. Right. You seldom listen to the patient, in this case, the, the, the petitioner or the client in their own words. Right. You always listen to them through the interpretation of the lawyer or the representation or the psychiatrist. Right. So unless you listen, and that, that's how psychiatry began. Nobody had listened to the madman earlier. You saw a madman on the road, he was behaving oddly. Mm. Why he was behaving oddly was never questioned. Right. Right. It's only when you start talking to the madman that the whole discipline of psychiatry started. I think that way the legal profession is, has not started listening mm. to the primary experience of the person. Right. And unless the professionals who are involved talk more to each other, that will remain a bit lost. That was an interesting interview and special thanks to Dr. Sanjeev Jain to agree to interview with us for the first episode of this podcast. We hope that you guys like this uh, episode and we'd like to hear about what are the issues that you'd want to get covered on the, on the podcast in the future. We would also like to thank our amazing team of interns comprising Yashita, Madhav and Anupriya for the tremendous effort that they've put into this.